Revelation chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. From the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And what a passage, right? Shay said earlier when we were giving thanks at the beginning of the service, she was thankful for me. I hope she's still thankful for me after I make this confession. But she knows. We've talked about it before. I mean, you think about a wedding, right? Wedding, celebration joy we're planning one now and it's it's this 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 wonderful thing there's the announcement right then there's the engagement period and sometimes it's long sometimes it's short and in our culture it's not anything like it was in in the days of Christ and when John's writing this it was it was different culture it was different mindset you know our engagements now you know sometimes are long short whatever but there's the announcement the engagement and then comes the marriage Oh, joy, celebration, right? I mean, everybody's happy. At least for that one hour or so, however how long it lasts, you know, the wedding and then the reception, at least at that point, everybody seems to get along, right? But you, you get what I mean. It's this joyous celebration. Here's my confession. Our wedding was wonderful. There are certain things I remember about our wedding. I remember before the wedding, I remember some events there, and one thing I do remember, I remember seeing her. I remember when those doors opened, and I saw her. That was a great moment. You know, something else I remember is uh, that when we got to where we were staying that night, uh, my pockets were full of money. I just, you know, shaking hands and this and that. And I, I took my coat off and it was, you remember that? My pants pocket, like, you know. But here's my confession. 
I don't remember much else about our wedding. I mean, I know I was there. I know she was there, and I know we got married, right? But there, there's just a lot of, some of it I don't. And, and the thing is, we don't have a video. Some people have videos, and they go back and watch videos, and they go, oh, yeah, I remember that, I remember that, I remember that. We don't have that. So th- there are some things that, 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 that I don't remember about it. But one thing I do, one thing that just sticks out at me is what a joyous occasion it was. It was. And what a celebration of me and my wife, my wife and I, I guess it's proper grammar, right? Coming together, coming together as one. It was joyous. It was wonderful. And marriages should be that way, right? I mean, marriage is the most intimate relationship. Now, You remember the very first statement God makes about marriage in Genesis chapter 2. You remember he said, he talked about how, you know, the man is to leave his father and mother and he is to be joined to his wife. You remember that language there in chapter 2 verse 24? Which, by the way, that's pre-fall. That's before sin entered the picture. All right? So God put Adam and Eve together, brought them together, the first, performed the first marriage ceremony, and they were to come together, and, and it says they were to be one flesh. It's the most intimate relationship. Marriage becomes a picture. It's why marriage becomes a picture of God's relationship with his people throughout the scriptures. In the Old Testament, Israel is looked at and talked about as being the bride. Now, in a lot of places, she's the unfaithful bride. She's the covenant-breaking bride. God's the faithful husband, faithful to his promises, looking out after his bride. Ezekiel chapter 16 is one of these places where we see this, where Israel's the bride, God's this faithful husband. The whole prophecy of Hosea, Hosea's relationship with Gomer, it it is one of Israel being pictured as this bride, even though she's unfaithful, covenant-breaking. Yeah, there's the faithful God. There's the faithful husband. So even in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, this marriage is used as this relationship, as a picture of this relationship between God and his people. In the New Testament, I want you to go to 2 Corinthians just a second. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Because this also plays out in the New Testament. I'm going to look at two places where Paul takes this marriage relationship And we see this as a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church, between Christ and and his people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he's warning about the false teachers. In chapter 11, verse 1, he says, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me, Paul says. For I feel a divine jealousy for you. A divine jealousy. These false teachers, they're coming in, they're wooing you, they're, they're, they're trying to sway you, they're trying to win you over. And Paul says, they're, they're, I feel this divine jealousy for you. But notice why. He says, for, here's the reason why. I betrothed you to one husband. Not many husbands. I betrothed you to one husband. Now, the betrothal period, think of like our engagement period, all right? But this is the thing I want you to pick up on. 
Paul says right now, as he's writing this to the Corinthians, and it was through his influence, his ministry, his preaching, Corinthians come to Christ and so forth, and he teaches them and this relationship that he has with the Corinthian church. But notice, right now, he says, right now you are betrothed. You are betrothed to one husband. Not many. And notice this, what he says. You're betrothed, I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one which you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one which you accepted, You put up with it readily enough. I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. These are the the false apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. I have preached the gospel to you. You have believed. And in that, I have betrothed you to one husband. Who's the husband? It's Christ. You are betrothed to Christ. You are promised to Him. You are not to be unfaithful. You are not to be unfaithful. Look at Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5. This is what he says to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. He's talking to wives and husbands, and in verse 25, after he says he tells the wives, you are to submit to your own husbands. This is what we read in, in, in 1 Peter 3. But you're to do this as unto the Lord. And then verse 25, he turns to the husbands, and he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is how you're to love your wife. Sacrificing. The self-sacrificing love. Notice this, verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his his uh, He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2. This mystery is profound. What are you talking about, Paul? I am saying... That it refers to Christ and the church. What refers to Christ and the church? This relationship between husband and wife. This mystery. It refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So these are two places where Paul takes a marriage relationship. And what he does is he uses it and he says, this is really a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. And again, it has Old Testament, Old Covenant precedent for it. Because this is exactly the way the Old Testament lays out the relationship between God and his people. 
God's the loving husband, faithful loving husband. His people are the bride. All right? You, you with that so far? You follow that? So marriage is this beautiful picture. It is the most intimate relationship. And I think it's, 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 a, it's beautiful the way that God takes the marriage between husband and wife and talks about it in terms of his relationship, Christ and his church. Christ and his church. See, in Revelation 19, when we get to Revelation 19, by the, we're, we're in a completely new section here. Sin, evil has been judged. Babylon has fallen. It's been put away. It's over. It's done. It's done with. There's the removal of sin and evil. And now, victory. Victory. You remember Esther? You remember the story of Esther? You remember how she spent, but she just didn't rush into the king's presence. The king just didn't stroll along and said, hey, you're my bride, come on. You remember there was this period of purification. You remember God favored her? And God put her in a position to where when she went into the king, she pleased the king. And the king chose Esther. There, that, that period of purification, that period of time before she actually, before the marriage was actually consummated and she actually became queen. You see, that's like the betrothal period. And in a very real sense, we are in that betrothal period right now. You remember what Paul told the Corinthians? I've betrothed you. He didn't say, look, on down the road, you're going to get betrothed. And you're going to get betrothed. He says, no, you are now. You are his now. The betrothal in, in, in the Bible, the betrothal, the betrothal period was, which was much more serious than our engagement period. In fact, it would take a, if you wanted to get out of the betrothal, usually what would happen is, you know, there, they, there were a lot of arranged marriages. And so when they became of age, then they entered the betrothal period, last about a year. And it would take a certificate of divorce to even get out of the betrothal. And then the marriage is consummated. And it was consummated, there was this grand feast. There was this grand feast. If you know anything about Eastern cultures, you know they blow it out when it comes to weddings, right? I mean, in the South, we think we have grand weddings. Man, in Eastern cultures, they blow it out. It is a celebration. It is this joyous celebration, right? So after the betrothal comes the marriage feast. And the marriage is consummated. John 14, I've made reference to this earlier. John 14, remember Jesus said, I am going to do what? Prepare a place for you. I'm going. And in a very real sense, the betrothal period, he's preparing the place. We've already read in scripture, where is he seated? He's at the right hand of God, right? And in a very real sense, not only is a place being prepared, we are being prepared. I think this comes out in Revelation. I think it comes out in Revelation chapter 19. So after sin and all that we've seen from 6 to 18, the judgments have come. It's over. God is judged. He's just. His judgments are true. They got what they deserved. It wasn't being some mean old, you know, God just flying off the handle and punishing people willy-nilly. No, his judgments came. It's over. Now comes the consummation. 
this relationship between Christ and his church. And 19 takes us into some beautiful stuff. 19, 20, 21, 22. I kept telling you, hang on, we're going to get here. Well, guess what? We're here. We're here. And this is glorious. This is beautiful stuff. This is, I think it's set this way so because there's a contrast with chapter 18. You remember the dirge in 18? Babylon's fallen. And you remember all of her people, all of the multitudes that had followed her, that, that had bought into her lies and so forth. You remember the dirges? And they just were, they were just saddened. Oh my gosh, she's fallen. We've lost our power. We've lost our money. We've lost our influence. She's fallen. What are we to do? We never thought she would fall. And there was just this dirge. Then you get to 19. See, there's a contrast. Because God's people, in the midst of that, God's people were told, celebrate. She's coming down. And you should be celebrating. Worshiping God. And in 19, here's what God's people are doing. God's people are celebrating. See, there's a contrast here. You want to follow the world? Go ahead. There's nothing but misery at the end of that. There's nothing but sadness, misery, Nothing but misery. You come to Christ, you follow him, guess what? There's victory. Celebration, joy. Yeah, it may be we wade through some stuff now, but wait. Wait till we get to this, right? So the first thing is this, this, this great celebratory feast that happens. Notice uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 1. John says, after this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice. We've seen loud voices before. In chapter 14, which I think, in that, uh, going back even to chapter 7, but chapter 14, 144,000, which I think is a picture of the church and so forth, it, we see the same language, this loud voice, and it's a great multitude in heaven. It's a great multitude. And this multitude's crying out, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! If you go to the Psalms, and this is where this is being pulled from, there's some psalms that are called Hallel psalms. And they start with praise the Lord. That's what hallelujah means. In fact, this is a transliteration of the Hebrew word. Hallelujah. You go to Psalm 111 and you look at that psalm and Psalm 112 and 113. And then you get to the end of the book of Psalms and you get to Psalm 146. And you see these psalms starting with praise the Lord. And then you get to Psalm 150. We looked at Psalm 150 Wednesday night. We prayed through Psalm 150 Wednesday night. And it's like this crescendo. Dorinda liked that word. It's like this crescendo. We hit the high point in Psalm 150. It's just chopped full of hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Why? Because he's great. He's God. So this is being pulled, I think, from... From that, notice what they say, hallelujah, salvation. It's not just salvation, any salvation. There's articles in the Greek, so it's the salvation. What salvation? The salvation that he promised in Christ. The glory, the power. All of this belongs to our God. Why? For his judgments are true and just. What we just went through, all of those judgments are true. They're just. People will get what they deserve. They're true. And just. For he has judged the great prostitute. This is Revelation 16, 17, 18. He's judged the great prostitute. She's been brought down. This worldly system that's been opposed to God since the fall. He judged her. He brought her down. 
who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. How many times have we seen Revelation, God's people being slaughtered and crying out, How long, O oh God? And God says, Just wait. Just wait. Well, guess what? It finally came. And he avenged on her the blood of his servants. And in verse 3, it says, once more they cried out. Actually, it's a second time. Literally, it's a second time. They cried out, hallelujah. So it's like you can't, you can't contain it. It's, it's just breaking forth, hallelujah. And a second time, here it is, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever and ever and ever. She's not, it's not like he judged her and, and, you know, you see the movies where the bad guy, the, the evil thing is, you know, oh, we think the evil's dead. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a wiggle of an arm, a wiggle of a foot or an eye opens and it's like, okay, here comes part two, right? There is no part two to Babylon. There is no sequel to Babylon. She's gone. She's judged. And her smoke goes up forever and ever and ever and ever and ever as a testimony of God's true and just and righteous judgment on her. And then, verse 4, here's a second group. These heavenly creatures. We've seen them before. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures, what do they do? They fall down. This is what we've seen them doing before. They fall down and worshiped God who, who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. And here it comes again. You see it? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's the third time hallelujah is mentioned here. And from the throne a voice came a voice saying. Chapter 5 seems to be one of these parentheses. I think it's like one of these parentheses that where we've seen this before. We're in this scene, and then all of a sudden, here comes another voice from the throne. We're not told who this voice is. There's real no description of this voice. It just simply, we're told this is what the voice is saying. Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Everyone praise Him. It's as if verse 5 reaches back to what we've just read, this, this victory celebration. This great multitude, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, it reaches back to that and says, now everyone, listen, everyone praise our God. But it also seems to reach forward to what's about to come. In verse 6, he says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. So there's this great celebratory victory, this victory celebration. And now we're about to see this victory feast this isn't no ordinary victory feast kings would come in and they would hold these feasts and they would parade their trophies around this is not some ordinary feast he says in this then i heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude maybe the same multitude there's been a lot of opinions as to his is this angels was the first group the great multitude angels it seems to me that it may not be angels because angels we do see we'll speak here in just a second at least one angel so it's, it's, this this seems to be the people of God some have said well this this obviously if, if this is all future this is the people who have come out of the tribulation and so they're 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 singing this I, I think it's I think it's all God's redeemed people 
And then they just can't contain themselves. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. This is exactly what it says in chapter 14 about the 144,000. When they're crying out, this is what they sound like. And they're crying out. See what, see what they say first? Hallelujah! You get the point here? I mean, when something's repeated like this over and over, especially within a context like this, do you get the point? I mean, what is this calling us to? It's calling us to praise Him. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. And then here it comes. Why? For the marriage supper. The marriage of the Lamb has come. Who's he marrying? Who's he been betrothed to? Us. It's finally come. The betrothal's over. It's time to consummate the marriage. The marriage of the Lamb has come. It's come. The Lamb is Christ. And His bride, which is the church, the bride, now notice the language. I think the language is very careful for a reason. And His bride has made herself ready. She's prepared herself. What was she doing during the betrothal period? Running off doing her own thing? Running off and chasing after other lovers? No, that's what Babylon did. What was she doing during the betrothal period? She was preparing herself. You remember Jesus? I'm going to prepare a place. His bride, preparing herself. Now, this is why I say the language gets very careful here. Because this is not going to say that it's the preparation that causes us to be at the supper. It's not a work salvation here. The language may seem, but I think the language is very careful. She has prepared herself. She has made herself ready. How? In the first place, she repented of her sins. She turned to faith and trust in Christ. You see, that's the first step. I turn from my sin, put my faith and trust in Christ. I hear the gospel, I respond, and I come to Christ. And then I live a life, and we're going to see this here in just a second. Then I live a life of following Him. And I persevere. I persevere. I stay loyal. And I live in a life that reflects the character of, of, of Christ. We'll get into that more here in just a second. Notice verse 8. This is again. This, uh, pay attention to the language. So she, she made herself ready. But notice verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure. It was granted her. Passive. This was, this was given to her. It was given to her by grace. And the fine linen bright and pure. I think this comes straight out of Zechariah chapter 3. Joshua the high priest, the priesthood was corrupt. 
You go back and reread Zechariah 3, and you see there Zechariah, uh, Joshua standing there, and Satan standing ready to accuse him, and God looks at him, and, and, and Joshua standing sort of as representative of the priesthood, which was corrupt at the time, and he's standing there, and, and the text says he's standing there in filthy garments. And God says, that won't do. Change his garments. Get those filthy rags off of him. And he gave him new garments. And then he tells him and he talks about how Joshua was going to restore this priesthood. And then he talks about the one who's to come. Which Joshua may be representing the one who's to come. And he talks about the branch that's coming in Zechariah 3. Which is messianic. There's one coming who is our ultimate high priest. And that was Christ. But this language of Joshua standing there, Satan accusing, filthy rags, and God says that won't do. It's not going to do at all. You've got to change clothes. And the clothes are taken off and he's given new clothes. He's given new garments. That's exactly what's being said here. It was granted to her. It was granted to the church. It was granted to us to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure not filthy, not dirty. When we came to Christ, those filthy rags of sin, that filthy garment that we were born with and lived with and sin, and all of that's removed and what we're given is the righteousness of Christ. That's, that's the pure, the bright clothing. We've seen this language already in Revelation. So here it is. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It's the righteous deeds of the saints. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, we, 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 we know 8 and 9, right? For, for it's by grace we've been saved, not of works. It's by faith. It's not of works, lest anyone should what? Boast. We often stop. We don't go to 10. Because 10, verse 10 says something like this. Verse 10, Paul talks about works. And he talks about works that were created beforehand by God that we should walk in. You're saved by grace. It's through faith. But then, what is expected is a faith that works. This is James. It's a faith that works. It's a faith that shows itself Sort of, look at it this way, it's a faith that sort of proves itself in the way a person lives. They no longer live in filthy garments. They no longer live like they have filthy garments on. They no longer live following after Babylon and the things. That's gone, it's over. Now you come to Christ, you, you, you have His righteousness, and, 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 and your clothing is fine linen, and the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. But notice what else happens here in verse 9. And the angel said to me. Now, angel's not in the Greek. The English translators, most of the translations add angel because it's pretty obvious that this probably is an angel. All right? It just literally says and says to me. Says to me. It's probably an angel. Said to me, write this. Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Not just invited, but they're invited and they do what? They come. They come. They're there. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Take it to the bank. It's true. 
It's not false. It's not going to mislead you. There's no error. It's the true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. Don't do that. Whoa now. Whoa. See here. See now. See not. That's what he's saying literally. This is reaction. Stopping him. Don't you do this. Don't you do this. You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Is this Christ's testimony of the church? Jesus' testimony about the church? That language has been in Revelation. Or is it our testimony about Him? We see that as well. And He says this, Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Don't you fall down and worship me. Don't you break the first commandment. Don't you break the second commandment. This is not about idol worship here. There were people at the time, and there are still people today, who worship angels. Some have said maybe John put this in there to show, hey, we don't worship angels at all. I remember being in a chapel service. And when we would have chapel, there would be three or four hundred in a chapel. And this was when I was in Dallas. And I had a professor by the name of John Pretlove. English, British guy. Godly man. Godly man. I will never forget, he preached in chapel one time. And he preached on, be holy, for I am holy. And he preached, and you could hear a pin drop. And it was powerful. I mean powerful. It was so powerful that when he finished, I'll never forget seeing him. He closed his Bible. He turned away from the pulpit and spontaneous applause broke out. It wasn't planned. It wasn't rehearsed. It wasn't like somebody stood up and said, oh, give him a hand. And I just, it's just this. It's one of the times where I've been in a service where just this emotion took over and there was a spontaneous applause. I'll never forget what he did. He's turned away, he has his Bible in his hand, he hears it, and he turns around with a scowl on his face, and he does this. And instantly it stopped. And he walked away from the pulpit. Do you know what he was saying? He had just preached on the holiness of God. How dare you applaud me? You see, that's what's happening with John here. How dare you worship me? This is about God. This is about Him. All glory to Him. All glory to Him. See, here's the thing. I think we need to see this. The, this betrothal period is going to end. Now, I may die before Christ comes back. And I'm going to go and I'm going to be with him. But even then when he comes and this happens, I'm going to be with him and I'm going to be there, right? This betrothal period, though, this betrothal period that we're in, it's going to end. It should be joy. There should, our hearts should be so full of joy. Just this spontaneous, hallelujah, this world will end. It's going to end. And there's going to come a consummation when I'm with Him. I've been betrothed to one husband right now. 
I've been betrothed to him. So I think this is the question. Right? I ask myself this question. What am I doing to get ready? How have I lived my life? Since I've become a Christian, how have I lived my life? What am I doing to get ready? She made herself ready because it was granted her this fine linen. And by the way, remember what John says, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Add this to what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, God has created these works that we should walk in them. What am I doing? Where am I spending my energy? Well, I first repent and believe and come to Christ, right? I mean, that's obvious. I guess another question we could ask this is, what sort of garments am I laying out? Right? You get ready for a big event. How many of you do this? How many of you just, you know, go in there seconds before you leave and just pull something out of the closet? That's so big. I do that. This is a big event, you know. You might say, oh, "What am I going to wear?" We're planning a wedding, and already I'm here. What? I got to have a dress. Well, the wedding's months away. I got to have a dress. I got to lay something out. Right? There's a wedding coming. There is a feast coming. What? What am I laying out? Am I laying out Babylon? No, you remember the, the, the warning. Come out of her. Get out of her. What am I laying out? I want to close with this. I want to go to Matthew chapter 22. Jesus used weddings and ceremonies in some of his parables. And Matthew 22 is one place where he does so. And I want us to look at this. This parable is also... It's similar in Luke 14, but there are some differences in the way that Luke lays this parable out. So I want to look at the Matthew, Matthew's uh, use of this parable. Matthew chapter 22. Familiar parable probably. There's a wedding feast. And this is what it says in 22 verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now understand, the king is obviously in this parable who? It's God. Who's the son? It's Christ. Okay? So that's the big part of the parable, right? So there's the the king, he's going to give a wedding feast for his son, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But what'd they do? They would not come. We're not going to that feast. And again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. This invitation, come, come to the wedding feast. Everything's laid out. All you have to do is come. But they paid no attention. And they went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Not only did they not come, some even went as far as to kill the servants. They don't want to hear this invitation. 
killed him. The king was angry and he sent his troops to do, and destroyed the murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not what? Worthy. They weren't worthy. Well, we're going to see in just a second why they weren't worthy. They weren't worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, to the wedding hall. And the, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. You notice that? Both bad and good. They just went out and said, hey, there's a feast, come on. And guess what? These bad and some good, they, they came. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now, let me just cut through. God's the king, Christ the son. Guess who the guests are here at this wedding? I think it's the church. It's the church. They've responded. They've come. But then something happens. Something strange happens here. Verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, this inspection takes place. But I think too, in the whole parable, and you look at the connection with what he's saying and the connection of the judgment that he's pronouncing on the Jews for rejecting him and so forth. This inspection somehow prefiguring the final judgment. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had what? He didn't have a wedding garment. Now, understand this about the wedding garment. It was not some special clothes that they had tucked away in a closet somewhere. And they pulled it out on weddings and wore it then and then they put it away. The wedding garment, it seems to be the wedding garment was just really washed clothes. Now make a leap with me here. What have we seen about the saints in the book of Revelation? What are their robes washed in? The blood of Christ. The blood of the Lamb. Washed garments. Here's a, here's a person at the wedding feast. They don't have the proper garment. They don't have. They don't have a wedding garment. They don't have a washed garment. And he said to him, the king said, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness, into, the, into that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Chosen ones here showing their, their faith by their good garments that they had on. One didn't have on garments. Now make another leap with me here. Let me make another connection here. Remember Paul in Ephesians 2.10, good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, right? And there are other places to talk about this. We could go into James, and it's a faith that works. We're saved by grace, yes, through faith in Christ alone, not by works. But it's a faith that works. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, the garments in this parable seem to be the good deeds. The good deeds. What's proof that you should be here? You, you follow it? 
Here's one didn't have the good deeds, didn't have the proof. Why do you think you should be here? Well, I was religious all my life, and I went to church, and I did this, and I did that, and I... And no, those, 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 those are filthy rags, Isaiah says. That's what's going to be burned up in the judgment, Paul tells us. So I come back to the question. What garments are we laying out here? Because if it's works of the flesh and if it's the works of Babylon, then guess what? We don't have the proper clothing. But if it's Christ and Christ alone and I stop wasting my life on my own pleasure and I seek Him and follow Him, that is the fine linen that's been granted. The betrothal is going to end. The consummation is coming. Everything that happens to me now in the betrothal period, every circumstance that I find myself in, right now we find ourselves in some pretty bad circumstances, don't we? COVID, an election up in the air. The world seems to have gone crazy. Maybe it's we could even get more personal. But maybe you got a boss that's going nuts. Maybe you got a husband that's going nuts. Just read these verses that we read earlier to him. You know, maybe you got a wife. Maybe you got kids. Maybe who knows what? All right. Here's the, here's my point with this. Whatever is happening, whatever circumstances are going on. It's not an opportunity for me to complain and moan and groan and talk about how bad I have it, and talk about how terrible it is, and complain about how maybe the election's not going the way that it ought to go, and maybe this COVID response is not going the way that we think it should go. It's not an opportunity to moan and complain and waste my energy on self-pity and selfishness. What it is, it is an opportunity to find the works God has prepared beforehand that I should walk in them and then clothe myself in them. I don't know what that is for you. Whatever it is. What is it for us as a church? I don't know. We need to seek it. We need to find it. It's an opportunity during this betrothal to lay out some clothes so that when I'm at the wedding feast, I want to hear, well done. What? My good and faithful servant. I don't want to hear, where did you get those clothes? Those aren't worthy of this. Bind him, throw him out. What about it? What are we laying out? 